only source of true delight whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding Hebrews chapter 2, which is our sermon text for this morning. We'll be reading beginning in verse 5. If you're using a, bu- a blue pew Bible, it is on page... 1001, which actually doesn't have a page number on it, so uh, look for 1002 and turn back a page. We'll begin in verse 5 and we'll read through verse 16, which is the uh, close to the end of the chapter there. This is God's Word. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere... What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin, and that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's uh, seek God together that he might bless us as we come to his word. Lord, we thank you for the... The giving of this word, we thank you for your mercy and grace that you've drawn us after Christ. Uh, We pray, Lord, that we'd be drawn after Christ this morning and that we would come to trust him and admire him more and more. Lord, that we would give ourselves more and more to him. And that if there are those who've, even in the midst of Christmas, using the very word Christ, as we speak of Christmas and being 
perhaps even many of us singing hymns and carols that speak of the salvation of Christ and yet being far from Him. Lord, may anyone in that situation, distant and far from Christ, be drawn to Him afresh as we seek to set forth His majesty. Lord, bless us by Your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Usually, um, the desire for control or the desire for uh, sovereignty, the desire for rule, is generally unhealthy. And we have a, a saying that absolute power corrupts absolutely. The more powerful a person is, the more control they have, likely the more damage is going to be done. And history has proven that to be the case again and again. Some have said that um, if Joseph Stalin had not risen to power, he would have just been a clerk in an office. As it was, he gained absolute power in the Soviet Union and killed some 30 million people, just killed them, murdered them, basically. And yet, notwithstanding, we're going to see this morning that one of the chief reasons, you might even put it this way, the ultimate purpose of the work of Christ, the ultimate purpose of the death of Christ and the work and resurrection of Christ is to bring us to a place of sovereignty and rule and dominion as human beings. So, I've entitled this The Restorer of Humanity, and it's pretty shocking, really, when we look, take a good look at what the Bible says about man's dominion, what has happened to man's dominion, and what God is going to do about that. And God is unabashedly, unashamedly, unembarrassingly restoring to humanity proper dominion in the new creation. And so we'll look, number one, that God intended man for absolute rule in glory and honor. Intended man for absolute rule in glory and honor. But then man lost this absolute rule in glory and honor, point two. And then, of course, point three, that through Christ, God restores that absolute rule in glory and honor. So, we begin then the first point. God intended man for absolute rule in glory and honor. Oh, thank you. Um, Here in verse 5, he refers to what he had been talking about all the way up to this point, that this contrast between Christ and of the Son and angels, and how the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is far superior to the angels. And so, playing off of that, he says it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Now, it's interesting, earlier he used a short version, uh, uh, a short term for this, in chapter 1, verse 6, when he says, 
when he brings the firstborn into the world, a lot of people have thought that referred to the incarnation when Jesus came into this world. But here he says, he speaks about the world to come of which we are speaking. And so it's very likely that when he mentions the world in verse 6 of chapter 1, he was talking about the Lord Jesus entering into the world to come. That is the new creation that was begun by his enthronement at the right hand of God. The Bible views everything that existed before Christ as the shadows and now the bright full day breaking upon the earth to its final full blossom in the new heavens and the new earth. So the new age has begun. begun. The last days are upon us. Uh, and this was begun with the enthronement of Jesus Christ. And so he contrasts the rule of angels in the old realm with the rule of Christ in the new realm. In fact, the Greek version of Deuteronomy 32.8 reads like this, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when He separated the children of men, He set the borders of the peoples according to the number of the angels of God. And so you have an interesting uh, few Verses in, in Daniel 10 where it speaks of, of the prince of Persia or the prince of Greece. Indicating a rule of angels and even particular angels having particular responsibilities in particular places. And we don't have time to go into all of that. But that was, that's the general Jewish view uh, that he is speaking to now and saying that's not going to be the case in the world to come. But what's interesting is this Son of God who is ruling in the world to come is the God-man. And so in the old realm, really you'd have to say angels were on top, okay, ruling over the realm of mankind. In the new realm, mankind's on top. It's ruled at the top by the God-man, the Son of God who is also Son of Man. Rule has been restored in Christ. The rule of man has been restored in Christ. That's what he's getting to as he just enters into this section in verse 5. The world to come or the world of which he spoke in chapter 1. When he brings the firstborn into the world to come, he says, let all of God's angels worship him. So the angels are worshiping the the God-man, the Messiah. But he intended man for worship, as you see his quote from Psalm 8. Now, if I can picture it this way, you have Genesis 1, which, in which God says, Let us make man in our image, and in the likeness of God he made him. And then he says, uh, so that he would have dominion over everything over the earth. And so then it speaks of how he made God, made man in his image and in his likeness. Those words are repeated uh, several times. And it says, then he commands man, be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth and rule it, have dominion. So it's up front. In fact, the association of likeness and image has... One view, one thing in view, in other words, I'm making you in my image and likeness, therefore what? Therefore, you're going to exercise dominion. So a vital part of our image bearing is dominion. It's at the forefront. And that's why when 
he makes Adam, and Adam sees the animals in the second, uh, ha- uh, second chapter. He names the animals. Well, it's God that's doing the naming in the first chapter. He makes man, and then man does the naming of the animals in the second chapter to indicate he's the king under God. He's naming things. He's exercising his dominion. So, that's Genesis 1. Here's Psalm 8, okay? Psalmist is reflecting on what Genesis 1 sets forth. What is man that you would make him just a little lower than the angels and that you would give him dominion and sovereignty? It's amazing that you would do this. Now, in a minute, we'll talk about the writer of Hebrews is commenting on what the psalmist said about Genesis 1. Okay, so we've got a, three layers here. Genesis 1, the psalmist is talking about Genesis 1, and now the writer of Hebrews is talking about what the psalmist said in Psalm 8. So it's all confusing. Let's go home. Uh, <laughs> now, here's the thing. He, he says as he's talking about this in verse 8, that you put everything in subjection under his feet. And he even makes the comment, now in putting everything in subjection, he left nothing outside his control. And there's this double negative. There's nothing not under his control, is the way it is in the original. And that word means uh, to, to obey. And he means there's nothing rebellious or insubordinate to man. Uh, Ultimately, or, or, or basically. So he was created to be king. He was created to exercise dominion. And it, there is in this an imperial destiny for mankind, the way one has described it. An imperial destiny, a regal destiny for mankind that Psalm 8 speaks of. So he's, he's quoting Psalm 8 to bring up the idea of human sovereignty and the original intention, and even in Psalm 8, the celebration of that dominion that was given man. And and an amazement that, that man would be given such a privilege under God to rule over the whole earth in that way. So, that's the beginning. God intended man for this absolute rule in glory and honor. Um, You've crowned him. There's, a, there's this coronation of man that Psalm 8 brings. And so there's the picture of Genesis 1, in a sense, God placing the crown on the man and the woman and saying, rule. You exercise dominion. You're a king and queen over this realm. You need to multiply and explore and discover and subdue it and rule it to my glory and honor. If we are anything in terms of God's image... We are kings and queens. We are meant for dominion. And though there are other aspects of the image, that we're to be righteous and kind and good and wise and just, all of these things, in a sense, are a part of this manifestation of God's lordship in the earth. And they're to hone and support and enable us to exercise this lordship in the earth. It's amazing how prominent that is in Genesis 1. And, and, and Psalm 8 is just rejoicing in that establishment of mankind. However, the writer of Hebrews now is going to comment on this sovereignty of man, this 
the fact that he ends that section by saying, there's nothing that's not under subjection. There's nothing rebellious under mankind. And it's as though the writer of Hebrews is saying, eh, not so sure about that one, that everything's really absolutely under his control. That doesn't sit too well. In fact, so much of life, and this is what he's getting at, so much of life is a mockery of our sovereignty, of mankind's sovereignty in this world. So there's such a limited dominion in so many respects. We might can rejoice at the fact that in 1800, as I was reading recently in the book Undaunted Courage, it took two weeks for... Jefferson to get the message to Meriwether Lewis that he wanted him to be his undersecretary. Well, I mean, he went all the way from Washington, D.C. to Pittsburgh. That's a whole 190 miles. Two weeks. And then, because of the roads, it took him three weeks to get back for the 190 miles. And now you can leave at 9 and get there for lunch. You know, just amazing. And then you think of communication. I mean, in the last 150 years... The amazing dominion of man that is exercised in the world. Nonetheless, and probably all the more because of the great evil that our technology has enabled us to accomplish as well. The writer of Hebrews would say, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We do not yet see this. He says, so right after he says, he left nothing outside his control. He says, but... Not really, not completely. There's something wrong with that absolute statement. And so we're rulers are all right, but we're mocked and frustrated by the presence of sin. And especially as this passage sets forth, the presence of death in the world. What did he say in verses 14 and 15? He says that he might, he came to partake of flesh and blood so that he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So that in the midst of this supposed reign and this supposed rulership, we're staring at death itself. And this is the crowning statement that we really, in the end, apart from God, are at the mercy of evil. And we're at the mercy of a curse that lies upon us. We're at the mercy of a broken creation. And in the end, we're so far from kings and queens that when you see, and perhaps every one of us, unless we just drop dead one day, we get old enough... You'll visit us in the nursing home. You'll visit me in the nursing home if you're still alive then. And I'm sitting there, my mouth's hanging open, and I don't know who I am, and I can't walk around. And you're thinking, hmm, ruler there, yeah, there's a king for you. <laughs> he didn't even know who he is. He can't do anything. And then when you die and your body has to be put away into the ground because if you leave it above ground, it's going to get so bad that it's going to make a bunch of people sick. I don't mean just like looking at it, but I mean physically sick because it's going to start breeding disease. And then if you end up with bones after everything else is gone, you know, there's a skeleton. There's the ruler of the earth, a skeleton. And then that might be dissolved into nothing. 
So death just mocks our rule. Yeah, there's a dominion, but look at the look at the limits of this dominion. We are returned to dust from which we come. We end up being just mere material with no life, no influence, no sovereignty whatsoever. And then as a part of all of that, you think of the the terrible things that we lack in this in, in in our existence that in which we are not sovereign we think of the ways in which we've been hurt by sin and hurt by other people there's a phrase in the new testament hating and being hated as a, just a description of the way it is to be a human being we think some of us in the terrible childhood difficulties that we faced some of us childhood abuse the utter lack of control when an older adult was doing things to us that we could not stop. The injustices done to us perhaps throughout our life, the injustices we have done to others, the personal limitations of our gifts or lack of, uh, lack of gifts, the broken relationships that we still can't fix, the broken relationships or the relationships with relatives or those close to us that still put us into agony and we can't change it. And then to see the limitations and frustrations of old age, either from our parents or relatives or friends, and finally to us, uh, how we will succumb to disease. And then you think of the limitations, the desire for accomplishment that are never met, uh, the way you could have done more and you didn't. And you see how many failures are in your life. And then there's this fear of death that extends to a fear of loss, a fear of rejection, a fear of persecution. And the, this writer, as he talks about this fear, he's really thinking about these people who are about to abandon or are in danger of abandoning Christ. As we've talked about before, that's the whole context of this letter abandoning Christ to return to their uh, Judaism. But they're abandoning Christ because of persecution, because of the fear of death. And this has such application to them that you don't have to fear death, even though you may be killed in serving Christ. You don't have to fear death. And it's demonic to fear death. It is demonic to, for, for Satan to bring that fear and subject you to that slavery so that you would turn away from Christ because you don't want to be rejected by men. You don't want to be shut out from certain societies. You don't want to miss out on this world. That's a demonic thing that brings to you the fear of loss in this world, which ultimately and finally is the fear of death. He says, Christ has come to set us free from that fear. So you can see how the writer of Hebrews is doing a kind of exposition or kind of analysis of this psalm, which does rejoice in the sovereignty that God has given man. But it's a thoughtful reflection to say, yeah, but look at that broken sovereignty. Look at man. Man is amazing. It's amazing what God has given him. But look at the brokenness of this king. Look at the broken crown, the tarnished crown of this king. 
But the demonic character of this opposition is pointed out by Paul when he says in Ephesians 6, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And very likely Paul is particularly talking about persecution here, you see. But these people that attack us, Paul says, these people that are coming after us, they're not our real enemies. It's authorities against cosmic powers, the rulers in this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's the real root of this fear of rejection and death. It comes from Satan who would hold us in his hand so that we would not find the grace of God. And so we're rulers, but broken rulers. And I think of, because of painting I've, I've admired for several years, uh, but I think of Lady Jane Grey, and she's called, you know, the Nine Days Queen. It was in 1553, her, her cousin, uh, Edward VI, nominated her really to follow him because he wanted to continue Protestant influence in, in England. And uh, <clears throat> as it turned out, Lady, Gray, uh, Lady Jane Grey did not really have the priority. It fell to uh, Mary, uh, his half-sister, and she ended up with the throne for five years. And so it fell under Catholic influence. But um, she was a queen for nine days, July 10th to July 19th. And then when Mary took power, it was inevitable that she was going to die. And so she was executed February 12th of the next year. And in Paul Delaroche uh, painting, uh, it's in room 41 at the uh, National Gallery in London. I got to see it last year in person. It was, it was amazing. It, it, it takes up the room. But in this painting, it's so touching. The two women in waiting, one is on her knees crying, another's flat against the wall on the left side of the picture. And there stands the executioner with this huge axe. axe. And Sir John Bridges, who was the lieutenant of the tower at that time, is helping Lady Jane find the uh, to find the the uh, platform on which she's going to put her neck. And there's hay around to catch what's going to happen. And she's blindfolded and she can't find the thing and, and he's trying to help her find it. Um, it, is, it is so touching uh, that he is <clears throat> helping her uh, get to this place. And the whole, the whole painting is so gripping because she was, she was a sovereign for a short while. And it makes me think of us, you know. Rulers, but look at what we ultimately are going to face. We're rulers slated for execution apart from God's grace, apart from God's mercy upon us. We're slated to be rounded up by the angels of God and brought to judgment and eternal execution. I mean, we're rulers, yes, but what we became by rejecting God, we're like... Sodom Hussein in a spider hole waiting for the army to come get us and take us away to be executed. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is getting at, that man was crowned with glory and honor, but we don't see everything in subjection to him. 
we see much that points to the opposite. We see men actually succumbing to death itself and being enslaved by his fear of death. But then, obviously, the point three, we're made for this reign, this, this glory and honor. We've lost this glory and honor, but it is restored in Christ. And so he says, verse 9, but, but we see him for a little while who's made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So he's saying that this glory and honor which we're supposed to have, which we would have had, but which we've sacrificed has been restored in Jesus Christ. The glory and honor of man's rule, of man's dominion, has been restored in Jesus Christ. And so Christ fully entered into humanity's situation so that he could destroy death and restore mankind to this glory and honor. The word Jesus is emphasized in this uh, verse He says, but we see him for a little while who is made lower than the angels. And then there's a break. Jesus. Okay. It's like underscored. This name Jesus. It changes everything. And it is by the grace of God. By God's kindness that he would send his son into our situation. And what's so encouraging is that God who made us originally for dominion in the earth is not going to be satisfied until he restores a people to that dominion in a new, newly made earth. And the coming of Christ and that manger is all about a final throne, not only for Messiah, but for Messiah's people as well. So that we would be restored in a new heaven and a new earth. And so... What Christ has done is to really fulfill the vocation intended for mankind. And in Christ, we see humanity's true vocation. And so we can't separate ourselves from Christ and think, well, he's there, but we're here and we're totally separate. We'll just admire his reign as Messiah. Because you always, we always have to remember, this he did for us He became a human being to put away death so that he could restore humanity to his true vocation and to fulfill God's design for creation and to display what had always been intended by Psalm 8, that all things would be subject to us. What's interesting is this phrase that speaks of man in which all things are subject to him is repeated constantly in the New Testament of Christ that all things are subject to Him. But you see, it's not just that all things are subject to Messiah, but Messiah represents His people. It's what He's done for His people. God already had reign over all things. The Son of God already ruled over all things. That's not the big point. The big point is that the one who was made uh, Messiah representing his people, he, a human being, has been put to that throne. So it's the full realization of the intended glory, the pledge of our own entrance into the imperial destiny that God intended. 
And so in Psalm 8, when it says that you put all things under his feet, speaking of man, 1 Corinthians 15, it says God has put all things in subjection under his feet, Christ. But Christ, the God-man, okay? And it's, it's stated so that we would be included because in Ephesians 1, Paul says, He raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand above all rule and authority, and he put all things under his feet. And then a few verses later in Ephesians 2, he says, He made us alive together with Christ and raised us, us, us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. So he brings the exaltation of Christ and all things under his feet Together with us. Now, it's not that we are little Christs. It's not that we are deified. It's nothing of the sort. It's that our humanity is taken to the same place as Christ. And so, as we think of Christ being the first fruits, we usually think of He's the first fruit of resurrection and we all are going to be raised with Him. But He's the first fruit of the exaltation of mankind to His proper reign. The first fruits. So that if we're raised like Christ, we're going to be put to a place of reign with Christ. They go together. And so you could say at the second coming, we're going to, we're going to go for a little R&R. Okay? Well, a lot of R&R. Well, permanent R&R. And that is permanent resurrection and reign forever. That's what's happening when he comes. Now, from then on, it's permanent resurrection and reign through Jesus Christ. That's why he goes to such a length to talk about his identity with us. If the children share in flesh and blood, he had to partake of those things so that he could destroy death. So that the reason we were to die, the reason we were to be cut off from the judgment in the judgment of God could be taken away because he would make atonement for us. Because he would die in the place of us so that sins could not be brought against us anymore. So that God would deal with our sins so that death would no longer have its judgment against us. Because Jesus has made us clean. And that's why it says crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. You see, he was rewarded with glory and honor because he put away death and he suffered in our behalf. He took care of death on our behalf. Therefore, he receives glory and honor and we receive glory and honor with him amazingly. He tasted death for us. He he actually experienced its utter bitterness for our sake so that we could also taste glory and honor with him. That's the glory of what Christ has done. He's made perfect through suffering. He's made a perfect Savior to bring us to that glorious place through suffering. And isn't it amazing that it says, He is not ashamed to call us brothers. He was not ashamed to be calling us family and to say, I will represent them. I will act for them. I will own them. I will suffer for them. And I will take them with me to that place. I will prepare it for them through my death and resurrection. And it's amazing that he says this in verse 10. It was fitting that he, 
fitting that the God for whom everything is made and by whom things were made and for whom and by whom things exist, that he should do it through the suffering of his own son. Fitting means that it was appropriate. It, it's a way to say this in this God truly acted like God. It's really a way to say, almost weird that a human being would say, I think that was fitting for God to do that. You know, it, it, you almost pull back and say, that's not, we don't ever tell God what's fitting or not fitting or appropriate or not appropriate. That's what's so gripping about this statement. F.F. F. Bruce says, God is never more fully nor more, more worthily revealed than when he is sending his son to suffer and die and rescue us. In other words, he never was more the unlimited, breathtaking, glorious, and powerful, and wonderful God than when he sent his son to suffer in our place and bring us to glory and honor. When you look at all the God things he has done, the things that manifest what he is as God, this one, the writer of Hebrews says, this one takes the cake. You want to see God. Look at this. Look at how he would come to our situation and our darkness and our weakness and bring us to glory and honor through the suffering of his son. How fitting this was for God. And it's a vindication of God. It's a vindication of God acting for his creation, a vindication of God acting for his people. I will not allow things to be that way. I will not allow Satan to have the final word. I will not allow my people to be under the fear of death and the power of death. Now, what's so, what's so um, ironic is that we think, we tend to think when the gospel comes to us and God demands the whole of our lives given up to Christ... We tend to think that we want to hold on to this world. We want to hold on to popularity, reputation, money, status, our own time doing what we want. We want to just hold on to control of our life. It's really what stands in the way. All the things that surround us stand in the way of our giving ourselves up to this God. But in this passage, in promising promising us himself and promising us a restored relationship to him, he promises us literally the moon. Just the moon, but the stars and the planets and the whole of the earth and everything in it. You know, he says, I I restore everything to you that you lost by your sin. It's amazing the lies of Satan that would have us hold on to some tiny peanut pathetic piece of this world when the God of the universe comes and says, I restore all things and I restore mankind to his rule and I do it through the suffering of my own son and I offer it freely to you. You can trust in him and it will be done for you. And we say, no, hold on to our little piece of paper over here that we think is a claim on some little part of this world and that's just going to be ripped out of our hand in judgment day. We'll have nothing. When God promises us himself and he promises us all things. And 
He was made perfect through suffering. We're going to look at this more next week, but how precious that you have a God who says, I'm going to give you a perfect Savior, one that's going to meet your need absolutely in every way. And I, as God, am actually going to take on flesh and go through the worst horrible pain and rejection and suffering so that no matter what you go through, you'll have an ear, someone who knows what it's like. I'll be a perfect Savior for you, and I'm going to the ends of the earth, in a sense, to be that perfect Savior for you. And you think, how can God improve on himself? Well, he doesn't improve on himself. It's just the full manifestation of his salvation and kindness that he would go to this extent so that when we come to him, we come to God and we come to a man who has suffered. That's how he makes a savior. (laughs) And you can expect, of course, through that, that you're going to suffer, but you have the promise and you have the Attendance, and you have the ear of this faithful priest who has suffered for you. And of course, he went all the way into the cave in. That's what this is all about. He didn't just tap on the rock outside. We all, of course, sooner or later, I guess every preacher has to use this uh, illustration the Chilean uh, cave in. But the San Jose Gold uh, and Copper Mine there in northern Chile, you know, it was August 5th for the cave-in, and for 17 days they thought the, the men were dead. So they have this little hole about the size of a grapefruit, they say, that, that punctured through to that area and found out amazingly. 17 days, two and a half weeks after, this men, 33 men are alive. So hydration gel and water and food and then letters and everything comes through that hole to sustain them for those 69 days. And then wonderfully on October 12th, after they had had built this uh, big shaft through the 2,050 feet of rock, put this capsule they named the Phoenix, you know, for the bird that was resurrected, so to speak. The Phoenix comes down. On October the 12th, this was 68 days after they'd been down there, and a rescue worker walks out into the chamber. And that was a token that every one of them, which happened the next day, would take the 15-minute ride up, and every one of them would be brought through that 2,000 feet of rock. And I think of that, of you and me, because if you think of our kingship, Really, our kingship was like being in a dark cave, lost and broken and dying. And being brought from death, being brought from the old world into the new world of the reign of Christ is like being brought up into the light, you know. And the rejoicing that occurred with each of those men coming up is like the rejoicing of the angels as we've been brought from death to life. We now are part of the new world. We are living on top of the ground now, so to speak. We're living in this new relationship to the world, this new relationship through Jesus Christ. We have already tasted, he says later in chapter 6, we're already tasting the powers of the world to come. Isn't that wonderful? You're already experiencing the power of this world to come. You've already been raised with Christ in a certain sense. You're already experiencing His salvation. 
you're already being restored to reign. And so all of our frustration, all of our limitations, all the things that we see in this life, we live in hope. We live in hope that we will more and more lay hold of what is life indeed through Jesus Christ. And in that final day, we will enter into the full reign that God has promised for his people. And if we have that, the world can offer us nothing. The world can tempt us with nothing. The world can persecute us with nothing that would turn us away from this Christ who has given us everything. Let us pray. O Lord, we praise your great name for what you have accomplished for your people. Lord, we lift you up. We exalt you. We pray that you would give us eyes of faith to see your beauty and your glory, your sacrifice, and what you have done for your people. Lord, we, as, as Paul said, eye has not seen or ear heard the great things that God has in store for those who love him. Lord, may this give us a joy and an eagerness, especially in this season when we celebrate your coming to realize what that event meant for our salvation and our ultimate and complete restoration and the restoration of the whole of creation. Oh, Lord, we bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. my fears away won't you chase my fears away